I'd say uh, first, Jessica, I'll give you that hundred that I promised for reading all of that later. And you did really well. Um, the other thing is, I don't know what kind of sleeping medicine some of you guys take, but genealogies is a good one. Um, I, from the moment I get up here, I can see glassy eyes already. It's like, what was all that about? Was that really Bible? I think you're going to find that these genealogies have more in them than maybe you would have ever imagined. And, uh, and so we're going we're gonna to look at this text. I've, I've titled it, Following the Two Seeds. And the two seeds are Cain and Seth. And you may remember Genesis 3.15. Look there briefly, because it's hard to understand these genealogies if you don't understand what Moses, the author of Genesis, is doing. He's trying to help us see that God has these two seeds, and these genealogies follow those two seeds. So there, uh, you're right, Bob, good, good call. I'm sorry. I had an announcement before I dove in. Tonight at the dinner, the Thanksgiving dinner, every year we take a, uh, an offering for Collins Memorial and their food bank. And I wanted to make sure, and Bob reminded me, thank you, to make mention of that so that you could prepare to do that tonight if you come for the Thanksgiving dinner. So, with that said, let me pause, and uh, I'm going to ask God to be with us as we look at this, God's Word through these genealogies, and see what God would say to us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would illumine your Word that it is indeed a word from you to your people, that it is inspired, it is inerrant, it is without flaw. And those things that we read, that Jessica read, are in there for real reasons. I pray that you would help us see and understand what it is that you would want to say to us through this. And so God, be with me. I am one who sins, they are many, but praise to you, your mercy is more. Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. And so, look with me there at Genesis 3.15, just as a reminder, this is the first gospel presentation in all of the Bible, and God comes to the serpent, and he says this to him in 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the snake. He's talking to Satan. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, which means Christ will bruise his head. He will stomp him, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Satan will take and put Christ on a cross, but it does not kill him because he's raised again. And so that is the very first uh, gospel presentation and so when you get into these genealogies it's important to know that what Moses is trying to do is to help you see that this is carrying out these seeds these lines and so one uh, way to think about this is genealogies are you know honestly in my own Bible study reading when I come to genealogies when I'm just at home by myself if I'm honest, I skip them. 
I don't read them. And now I've got Jessica up here reading the whole thing to y'all because almost all of chapter 5 was just genealogies. Why would I do that? Because they're not irrelevant. There is more there than meets the eye. They're not insignificant. You know, it seems at first glance that you've got this epic tale of Cain and Abel where Cain kills his brother, and then you've got these genealogies. And then you've got this epic tale of Noah and a flood. And it's like, why put that in the middle? Is it just kind of like to let us sleep for a minute and then bring us back into some high drama? Not at all. Not at all. So why do genealogies matter? The first thing I would say is that genealogies teach us that God sees and knows individuals. He sees and knows individuals. When he looks down from heaven, he doesn't just see a mass of humanity. No, he sees you and he sees me. Why else would he take the time to tell us in his word that he actually has a book of life and that in that book his people's names are written down isn't that interesting that if you know the Lord you're in his book and you've been in that book from all eternity so God looks down and he sees not just massive humanity he sees people also the genealogies show us this God promised that if you eat of this to Adam and Eve, surely you will die. And if you listened as Jessica read through chapter 5 of Genesis, at the end of each of those it says, and he died, and he died, and he died. It is like a clock tolling, telling us God's promises are true. God's word is true. I told you, you would die if you did this, and they die, and they die, and they die. And it goes like that all the way up to Enoch. And we're going to talk about Enoch in a moment. But when it gets to Enoch, something different happens. So, um, also I want to say just up front, because it's kind of confusing, there are um, two Enochs and two Lemics. One is from the good seed and one is from the bad seed. I'll show you where in a moment. Um, but also about the genealogies. When you get to the seventh generation from Adam through Seth to the second Enoch, you see almost, because the word seven in the scriptures is a complete, is, a, is a symbolic for completion, you see Enoch as a man that walks with God. That's the way the scriptures talk about him. But in the other seed, when you follow that line, when you get to the seventh generation, you get Lamech. And Lamech is about as evil and as bad as you could possibly be. And so you see the completion of evil and all that is bad and good that comes out of the curse, bad and not good that comes out of the curse. Let's look at the line of Cain. Look at Genesis 4:17. If you have your Bibles, Look there with me. Genesis 4, 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So right out of the gate, we have a challenge 
One of you came up to me last week after the service and said, who was Miss Kane? Who was Mrs. Kane? Do you see the problem with the text? It had to be Cain's sister. And there's all of us, when we hear that, we kind of go, whew. You know, just, it's in our day, in our time, that's not right. That's immoral. The only possible explanation, and there are lots out there, but if you follow the scriptures and believe the scriptures, the only possible exp explanation for the existence of Cain's wife is that she was indeed the daughter of Adam and that Cain did indeed marry his sister. The only way the human race could have descended from a single pair of people is if that were true. Now, let me tell you this, though. James Montgomery Boyce, I'm not going to give you all the details, but he says that because Adam and Eve and these people were living, and we see this, eight, nine hundred years, how prolific could you be in children producing over eight or nine hundred years if you just kept having children and kept having children and then your children had children and then your grandchildren had children by the time Adam and Eve died some say there were at least a million people on the planet so it's not this small little bit of people and it's like well you're the only one here I know uh, I don't really like you but I need to marry you because you're the only one no it wasn't like that I'm quite sure there were lots of people but they're all descendants of Adam and Eve. Now, we know later this becomes a moral issue because in Leviticus 18.11, which is 2,500 years after Cain marries and takes his sister as his wife, 2,500 years later, God says this in Leviticus 18.11, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter. I don't know why it says that, your father's wife's daughter. Can you follow that? That's your sister. Brought up in your father's family since she is your sister. So now at this point, we see God stepping in and saying, that's not right. All right, so look with me at Genesis 17 and 18. We read 17. Cain names the city after his son. And then in 18, it says, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahuzajul. I don't know how you really say that. And Mahuzajul fathered Methuselah, and he fathered Lamech. And Lamech is what I'm trying to get to. But before that, let me say this. Cain names this small city after himself. Many suggest, as you read the commentaries, that this reflected what was important to him. His legacy was really important, is what many suggest. Not only that, but God told Cain uh, he was going to be a wanderer in the land, if you look at the text. Cain, you're going to wander your whole life. Cain immediately goes and sets up camp and starts to build a city, defiant to what God had said. And that continues through Cain's life. So in contrast, when a godly person named a place in Genesis, they would name it typically after Yahweh or some derivative of his name. Cain names it after his own son as if to 
preserve his legacy. Men, women, people are typically very concerned about leaving a legacy. That's kind of normal. Making a name for themselves. It's the normal way of people. It's the way we are. However, you know, you see it a lot. Like if a person has great wealth, they might give a university however many millions of dollars and they build that building and then they name that building after them. I think the way for us to think biblically about legacy is we, we live to make much of God. I don't want the last thing, the last gesture I do as I'm leaving this world to try to go out making much of myself. Why would you not give that to the kingdom in some way and not worry about your name being on a building or a bridge? I think that's a more biblical way to think about it. And it is the way of Enoch we will see here in a little bit. So the line from Adam through Cain to Lamech is seven generations. The number seven, I said, is typically symbolic to indicate completeness or fulfillment. The ever-increasing corruption and downright perversion that's happening of the human race here reaches its climax in Lamech's life. And so look at Genesis 4.19. It says, And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. So this is the very first time in Scripture where you see polygamy beginning to take place, a man taking more than one wife. Lamech, in his lust, takes two wives, and it is coming from the seventh generation of Cain in its completeness. Now, the scriptures, you may say, do they speak about this? Because if you remember, you've got David took more than one wife. Solomon, man, he, you know, just a plethora, a plenty. And so you might say, well, maybe it just wasn't wrong. Maybe it wasn't immoral. No, it was always wrong. The model was set when it said a man and a woman shall come together in marriage at the very beginning of Genesis. And that was the model. Polygamy has never been okay with God. Even though his saints and the saints of old did it, it is not good. And it did not go well for them. If you read those stories, much of it is because they took more than one wife. And so we see Lamech taking his more than one wife here. But not only that, Lamech begins to boast. And so I want you to see Lamech's boast, and it's the second a song or poem in the scriptures and it's the first after the fall read with me Genesis 4 23 and 24 Lamech said to his wives now isn't that interesting he's saying this to his wives Ada and Zillah hear my voice just feels prideful it just feels arrogant it feels like he's saying Ada Zillah hear my voice I am man hear me roar he says, you wives, you wives of Lamech. He's talking about himself in third person. You know he's got an ego problem. He says, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, he's referring back to when Cain said, I'm scared 
they're gonna, people are going to hurt me because of what I did to my brother. And God says, if they hurt you, I'll avenge you sevenfold. He's referring to that. And he says, I, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Like, I'm a bad dude. He's telling his wives, I'm a bad man. You mess with me, it'll be 77-fold. Not just seven like God said to Cain. This guy is absolutely full of himself. And he's completely immoral. He's bragging about murder. He didn't just murder like his ancestor Cain did. He's bragging about it. And he ain't even just bragging about like a grown man. He's, gra- he's bragging about whooping up a little boy, a young man. So this guy is, he's not good. He's not good at all. It is interesting, I think, this is a side note, but I want to chase this rabbit for you and help you see it. Have you ever read the text in Matthew 18, 21 through 23, where Peter comes to Jesus and he says, how many times must I forgive? And Jesus says, oh, Peter says, well, let's, let's read it together. In Matthew 18, 21 through 22, it says, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And he says, as many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, so Peter's thinking he's got it right. Seven times is completion. That must be right. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, seven times 70 is what some of those translations say. And I did the math because I had this guy in my life that I couldn't stand. And it's 490 times. And I started counting how many times I had forgiven him. And I was going to get to 490, and then I was going to let him have it. (laughs) But that's not what the text is teaching. That's not it. What is happening here, I think the most likely explanation of what Jesus is saying is he's referring back to what Lamech said. Jesus knew what Moses wrote. And he's saying, you know, the inclination of sinful man is to return evil for evil without limit. Our our inclination as sinners is to return evil for evil without limit. But he's saying to Peter, God's standard is just the opposite. Jesus said, return good for evil without limit. So if that word is complete, it is completely forgive them. Don't do what Lamech did. Don't think like Lamech thought. You, as a righteous line, should think, return evil with good unconditionally and forgive unconditionally. Now, let's look at the line of Seth, the righteous line. Seth, the name means appointed or set in place of. Who was he set in place of? Abel. Cain had killed Abel, and now God is giving Eve, another son. It says in Genesis 4.25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. For Cain killed him. And he gives her another. It's interesting that the line 
as we talk about that is coming from the woman and from Satan it looks at this point in our story as if the line of Satan has snuffed out through Cain and Abel and killed the good line but God provides through Seth as he does with us providing us a savior so look with me we're not going to read through all of those um, verses in Genesis 5 1 through 20 but there is a rhythmic way that Genesis 5 1 through 20 reads as it tells about these lives as it gets to the end it says he fathered them and then he died you heard me refer to it earlier and then he died and then he died but here's where the rhythm breaks is when it gets to Genesis 5, 21 through 24. Look at 21 through 24 with me. It says, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Now here's, here's interesting. This is interesting. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. A couple of things that are very interesting here. The first 65 years, we don't know why, but it doesn't say that he walked with God. Then he has this son, and it says for the next 300 years, he walked with God because he dies at 365. So there's 300 years there, and there's probably something about having Methuselah that clicked or changed and I've heard some of your stories and how when you had children there was suddenly certain maybe a, a responsibility that you felt I don't know what God did in Enoch at this point but some, for some reason something clicks God turns on the light and Enoch begins to walk with him and he walks with him for 300 years kind of crazy the other idea here is there's a stem in the verb in the Hebrew that signifies a continuous nature thus the point is that Enoch constantly communed with God he constantly communed with God that sounds daunting and challenging to me and it makes me wonder how did he do it Look at Hebrews 11, 5 through 6, and I think we see maybe some clues as to how Enoch did it. In Hebrews 11, 5 and 6, this is the chapter about faith, and some call it the Faith Hall of Fame. And you have all of these different people that have walked with God, and they're mentioned here because of their faith. So Enoch is mentioned in verses 5 and 6. And this is what it says. By faith, Enoch was taken up from this life. In other words, he walked with God right out of this world into heaven. You say, how did he do that? I say, I don't know. This is what the Word says, and the Word is true. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, now follow this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let me ask you a question. In light of that statement, 
Can someone who is not a follower of Christ do good? I would say, yeah, they could do good. Could someone who is not a true follower of Christ please God? I think the answer is no. They cannot. Because the only way that we please God, it says, is by faith. It is by faith that we please God. It is impossible to please God without it. And then it says, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he is, so you must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly, that's a key word, he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God rewards the ones who earnestly pursue him. So, my question, what would this look like to walk with God like Enoch did? What would it look like to walk with God in continual communion with God? Enoch believed in the true God, and it pleased God. Let me ask you this. This is personal inventory for you. It's an audit. It's a soul audit. Is your walk with God marked by deep and rich relationship and fellowship with God? Is your walk with God marked by deep and rich communion with God? How could it be? Let's look at our text. It says, first, there must be a trust and a deep conviction that God is indeed who he says he is in his word that's the first part for this to be true it is my belief this is just more my belief my experience I do not think that we can get to a place where we believe who God is at a deep conviction level and what his word says without spending large amounts of time with God not just a casual few minutes here a daily bread though those are not bad but it's got to be more than that we've got to be people of the word that come to the word regularly and often and commune and read and study and ask questions and then we get on our knees and we say God I don't I don't understand that could you help me understand this part And we ask him and we commune with him and we talk with him. And as we do, he begins to reveal more and more of himself to us. And before we know it, we're communing with him in this beautiful way. And we're learning more and more and more of who he is. The problem is, in our flesh, and we all have the remaining sin nature, this is why I don't do more of that is in my remaining sin nature, it tells me, Clint, what you really want to do is watch a good movie in your time off. What you really want to do is go uh, ride a bike or whatever. And I think, frankly, none of those are bad. All of those can be done in fellowship with God, but not as substitutes for it. And so there are things that I do that I run to, that I know what they are, instead of running to God. And I think to commune with God and be in fellowship with Him in this way takes 
moving from making it a duty to a delight. And we've got to learn that our greatest joy is going to be found in nearness to God. And that's not easy because our flesh doesn't teach us that. Our flesh says, no, TV, this, that, all these gifts of the, of the creator are going to make you happy. They're going to bring you joy. But that's not true. And Blaise Pascal says it this way. I thought I find this interesting. He says, if you can read it, all men seek happiness. All of us do. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should seek our own happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Happiness. People hang themselves to get away from their pain. We pursue happiness, and that's not wrong. John Piper's given his whole life and his life message and ministry to make this one point. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When I make much of him, when I come to him for my satisfaction and my enjoyment and find him to be all satisfying, it makes much of him. It's like if uh, I try to go out with Peggy on, on Mondays and I come home and I tell her, um, I bought you these roses, you know, and I'd like to take you out. And she says, well, that's sweet. Why'd you do that? And I say, well, I think that's what you're supposed to do when you're married. She'd be like, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> but if I, you know, if I come home and I say, uh, I got you these flowers, well, why'd you do that? Because I'd like for you to go put on something nice, and I'd like for us to go out to a nice meal. There's nothing that I like more than spending time with you. I love you. That's a whole nother ballgame. And that's the way it is with God. We come to him with our flowers and we say, well, I'm supposed to spend time with you, God, so here's my time. That's just duty. Does that make much of him? How might he feel if that's the way we come to him? But if we come to him and we say, Lord, there is nothing better than being in your presence. There's nothing better than knowing you at a soul level than engaging you over your word. How might he be made much of in that situation? And so, in our text, it says the second thing we must do is believe he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You must believe that he is, and you must believe, and this is what Enoch did, and this is what the text said he did. He believed God was going to reward him. He didn't believe God wasn't good. He believed God was good. He was just. He was right. And so I'm going to walk with him because he's going to reward me. See, it's not wrong to seek that reward. Enoch, that's what the scriptures are saying. He sought that reward from God and he received it. And so we must seek God 
that we might know him in these ways. I have this. It is his great desire. It is God's great desire to be found. And when found, to become your greatest treasure. He wants to be found by you. And he wants you to treasure him. How do I know that? First Chronicles 28, 9. Listen to what David told his own son. He said, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and he understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And then in Psalm 58, 11, mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. We're talking about, does God give a reward when we seek him? And the answer from the scriptures is yes. Look at Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Those who seek me diligently. What if the text read this way? Those who piddle around in the morning, like for me, the great challenge for me, especially in years past, was I wanted to get up and turn on the TV and read the newspaper and listen to the news on the TV and just kind of start my day like that. And I remember right after I became a Christian doing that, and somebody that was living with me said, why do you do that? And I said, that's what I've always done. And they said, but you're a Christian now. I said, yeah. He said, well, why don't you start your day by spending a little bit of time with the Lord? And I thought, I guess that's a novel idea. <laughs> Maybe I should. And I began to change my habits, and as I began to change my habits, I noticed I began to get to know the Lord. And so I would encourage you, not just in the morning, but like Enoch, throughout your day, be spending time communing with him as you go through your day. So it's not enough just to believe that he is. We must believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I want you to see the contrast. Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam through the line of Seth to in the Canaanite line, the bad line, in the seventh generation is represented by the person of Lamech. One good seven generations out, one bad seven generations out. What a contrast. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews comments this way, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. The question is, why did God take Enoch without death? Think about what's about to happen in this text. In chapter 6, right after this, the whole world is about to be destroyed by a catastrophic flood. God is trying to say through Enoch, it doesn't have to be this way. Walk with me. I will deliver you. I will deliver those that are righteous. 
those that pursue me with all their heart. And so it is interesting, you know, I said about leaving a legacy. The, uh, the Enoch from the bad line, he had a city named after him. The Enoch from the line of Cain, he got a city named. That, that'd, be, that'd be pretty sweet, you know, have a city named after you when you pass. But the Enoch from the good line, it says he walked with God. I'll take it. I'll take this one. And I'll give my life to doing that. Would you? Would you follow the, the line of Enoch? Let's pray.